0: Welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Jen Sproul, CEO of the Institute of Internal Communication. Our organisations face an onslaught of challenges across the social, economic, political, and environmental spectrum. The systems we've used to support 21st century ways of life are weakening. The way we work requires dramatic transformation in response to these challenges internal communication is a crucial function that helps organizations achieve lasting change this podcast explores the intersection between internal communication and the future of work every conversation is curated to help internal communicators better understand the risks and leverage opportunity we really hope you enjoy listening
1: Hello, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm your co-host, Catherine Barnard, and I'm joined as ever by Jen Sproul, Chief Executive of the Institute of Internal Communication, and Dominic Waters, communication expert and leadership expert. Today, we have a fascinating guest who's coming to talk to us about team dynamics Gabriella Braun is the director of Working Well, a specialist consulting firm using psychoanalytic and systemic thinking to help understand the hidden truths behind our behaviour at work. She works with both teams and individuals and has worked with an array of clients across public sector, private sector. Previous clients include British Library, RADA, various NHS trusts, University of Cambridge, Queen Mary University of London. She's got a master's degree in consulting to organisations, psychoanalytic approaches from the Tavistock Clinic. And most interestingly, she has very recently seen the launch of her first book, All That We Are, in paperback, which is obviously testament to the success of its 2022 publication. I have to say not fangirling too much, I wanted uh, Gabriella to come onto the podcast because I read all that we are and was absolutely fascinated by what I saw as a first-of-its-kind analysis of how our behaviour in groups, in organisations, gets held up by, I guess, psychological baggage and and our own complex backgrounds, but also cultural dynamics and legacy behaviour that kind of carries forth in organisations. So I've probably done a description of what Gabriella does a terrible disservice, but welcome, Gabriella. Thank you so much for coming to chat with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Honestly, I feel like what you're going to share with us is going to be infinitely more complex than what I have outlined to listeners. So I think what I would love to do is to kick off by asking you to tell us about your work somewhat more eloquently than I can, but also what led you to come and work in this field.
2: Okay, so I work with leaders and teams across very different organisations and I try and help them to work at their best. And what I do that's different from a lot of consultancy is that I apply psychoanalytic and systemic thinking. So that is a way of looking at what's going on under the surface, the things that are unconscious but affect us all the time The things, for instance, that we know about in the family, we take as a given now, like sibling rivalry, we take as a given in families. But not many people think of it in relation to the workplace and to colleagues. And yet, why wouldn't we bring those leftovers, probably unconsciously, in the way we are with our peers who are our siblings in the workplace? So that's the sort of thing that, Applying psychoanalytic thinking can help you uncover and an address in the workplace.
1: I was going to say, so, so an example of that, a really obvious example could be, I think, I was brought up, my parents post, well, that my parents were born in the 30s. So quite a traditional attitude to social hierarchy, let's say. So I was always by my parents to respect my elders and I was having a conversation with a friend about this the other day because we were saying although on the one hand you know we're now of an age where we are the elders there is this other bit which is that it still holds true that we would just have been conditioned to respect our elders but actually if elders are speaking Piffle and Balderdash, then it's our, you know, we can offer up an alternative perspective. But that's the kind of thing that I think you're talking about. Is that, like...
2: That certainly absolutely comes into play. And we may be aware of it, and we may not. So it may be an unconscious thing that we feel we can't say anything to the elders in the organisation who aren't necessarily older in age, but may be our bosses, our leaders, and we feel somewhere in us that we can't speak against anything they say. Or contrary to that, we may have leftover feelings about our parents and the way they exercised their authority, because for most of us they're our first authority figures – And we may have leftover feelings that makes us quite rebellious towards our managers because they're now our authority figures. And again, it might not be conscious that we have that connection, but we're somehow, for some of us, we might be rebelling because in our unconscious, it's like, oh God, here's, here's the parent figure again telling me not to do this and yes to do that. The sibling stuff, I think, is more about the kind of rivalry that you get in teams between peers. And that can be to do with things like who got more attention from the boss, who's seen to be the favourite in the team, which can trigger all sorts of things for people, like whether they felt that their sibling was favoured by their parents, or whether they always felt that they didn't get as much attention as from their parents as their sibling got. All of those things that are going on all the time in the family are often re-triggered at work because it's that same kind of scenario. For most of us, the family is the first experience of a group and our parents are the first experience of authority figures.
1: But I didn't ask the other bit of your question. Oh, yes. How did you come to work in this field? I mean, that's fascinating.
2: The work's fascinating. How did I come to work in this field? Well, I went through, you know, much more traditional work roles. I worked in further education, I made my way to management level, I then did staff training. I then worked for a national awarding body and I was a head of department. So I went through those those roles that are in the workplace and I became quite unhappy with my experiences at work. The higher up I went, the harder I found it. So I loved being part of a team and all the camaraderie that went with that. When I became a leader, I actually found it incredibly stressful. I didn't know how to understand what was going on. I had no training or preparation or support at all in those days, and I'm going back a lot of years. There was nothing like mentoring or coaching or anything. I read books to try and help me understand my experience, and they didn't because they would tell you, you know, how to resolve a balance sheet or whatever. That wasn't what I was struggling with. I was struggling with people. And I couldn't understand. I found it so bemusing to work out what was going on. And that really set the seed for me thinking, one, actually, I'm not sure I want to be in an organisation. And two, I want to work with people to help them have a better time at work and to understand more of what's happening in the workplace. The other thing that put me off being in an organisation was because I kept having to make choices. When I was in further education, I was a further education person or I was a staff training person or I was an awarding body person. I couldn't bring the parts together. Mm. I couldn't, there wasn't a job that let me bring the parts together. And it was only going off freelance that I could I could get different contracts that satisfied different parts of my experience. So that was another reason that I went into being a freelancer. And then I actually did the Masters at the Tavistock, which was about really trying to understand those things that had mystified me, what happens to us as people at work. And at the same time, I went into psychoanalysis as a patient, so I could really discover what happened in me and that changed my thinking and changed my work forever.
1: I'm going to stop hogging the mic, but I think what you what you described there really stands out for me because I don't think we can underestimate just how fledgling our knowledge about team dynamics really is. Just in terms of, you know, psychology in its current form, where well, there have been various iterations of psychology in the last 40, 50 years, but also what we now understand about organisational psychology is still very much in its infancy, isn't it? And I think, you know, we're learning and growing and developing all the time in that regard. And I think anybody that comes at it from a overly simplistic perspective is kind of missing the point. Yeah, totally agree.
0: Oh, thank you, Gabriella. That's been so fascinating. And just to hear you talk about those things it makes you from a personal perspective i've been you know doing that thinking going why do i behave in certain ways why does that trigger me why does that make me feel that way and you do those deep reflections i think in certain ways but it also as you say it as a man, as i am a manager of a team i'm a manager of a team with varied personalities varied biases or conscious or or, or, or conscious or otherwise and varying needs and figuring that out and understanding that it's a really challenging part of leadership and the hardest part of leadership is people it really is but it's also the most rewarding part as well it can take from your bucket and it can add to your bucket but there's certainly things that even though I have the more you say it I'm like oh yeah that makes sense I can understand that and how you lean into that but just picking up on what on your work and also what, what Kat was just talking about there, I think in terms of where we are as internal communicators and, and where we are in this dynamic now is that I think we all recognise as more emotion or the ability or the freedom to f- share emotion feels more open it feels like we can do that now we've been pushing those down for years cuz it's just not what you do at work is it whereas i think now the the, the sort of the ability to be who we are and to share that it is, is more open and free and and we're using i think our voices more loudly and, and more clearly and sometimes are things that we're aware of and sometimes are things that are not we're aware of in ourselves and also as well i think that when we think about what's going on with things we've talked quite a lot to internal communicators about is we need to get to know our audiences again because we have been very traditional in how we segment and put people at work in boxes well if you're of this age you're like this if you're of this role you you're like this. And actually the behavioral and psychological aspect is, as Kat said, in its infancy. And we need to apply that much more when we think about our audiences and our people and our teams at work and how to best connect with them, how to best communicate with them. And I also think we've seen obviously the explosion of much more team-based structures, you know, because we are now working in, in different ways. And with all that in mind, taking that your expertise of looking at that and the work that you've done in your your book and as we try to grapple with that infancy of trying to apply behavioural psychology to our understanding, what do you think has been your most common observations when you work with teams that can perhaps give us a new way of thinking about teams and how we support them and connect with them?
2: Well, I suppose some of the most common observations are come from psychoanalytic understanding, really. So one of them is that we kid ourselves when we think we're coherent, because we're not. We're not coherent beings. People are just not designed like that. So we often in teams, there's a camouflage, and it's not done for bad reasons at all. But we present a kind of camouflage of we're a good team, we're a nice team, we're a nice set of people. And probably we are, but it doesn't mean that's all there is to us. We've also got our nastier side, our cruel side, our hostile side, our rage, all of those are there as well. So I think one of the things that I observe is the difficulty for very understandable reasons, the difficulty in recognising the complexity of us individually and the complexity of what therefore is happening in a team. And one of the things that's really difficult for teams to recognise is the unconscious pulls that are happening to them as a team. was a psychoanalyst from many years ago decades ago and he came up with a theory about basic assumptions in teams in groups of people and the basic assumption he had three basic assumptions and he called it basic assumptions because he said in that place the basic unconscious assumption is that you're not really there to do the work whether it's, you know, making chocolates or making cars or teaching a class or whatever it is. Really, what you're there to do is either fight or flee from an enemy or pair up with something or some idea that will resolve everything in the future, like the Messiah will come and you don't have to worry about anything, or be completely dependent on your leader so you don't have to think your leader's going to do everything. And those basic assumptions can take over when a team is under a lot of anxiety, under a lot of stress. They don't know that it's taking over. And they might be extraordinarily busy, but often it's very much, it's not on task. So that's one of the things that I commonly come across. And if they know about it, it's easier for them to, it's not a problem to go into a basic assumption state of mind sometimes, but it is a problem if you just stay there. So if p- teams know about and they don't, it's easier for them and their managers to kind of get them out a bit. So the one that people recognise very readily is fight-flight, where there's something going on in the organisation that the manager or the whoever it is are the enemy. And the team is just going to fight them or flee from them. And the manager at times or the leader might get completely perplexed because no matter what they try and do, somehow they're still the enemy because something else is going on. It's not, it doesn't, of course it matters what they do, but it doesn't affect the state of mind. Something else needs to happen to affect that state of mind. So that's that's a common thing that I see Another common thing that I see, and this again relates to anxiety, is that the the nature of the organisation's work gets into the staff. It does ordinarily, and under a lot of stress, it will show itself more keenly. So uh, I'm trying to think of an example now. Education organisations often very... Worried about assessment, because you know they do that, don't they? They are—they're <laughs> always assessing people.
0: I always see it in the business of that as an education provider as a self, so it so resonates as you say it.
2: <laughs> yeah, and they will be organisations that might worry. You know, if I'm working with them, what am I making of their performance? They won't use the word assessment, but it's there. You can see it's there in oh, how are we being assessed? Whereas another organisation might not think about that at all, because that's the nature of their work. So, the nature of an organisation's work and the way it plays itself into the team dynamic is always present in some shape or form.
0: That's so fascinating, Gabrielle. I'm going to pass over to Don, because I think there's probably a lot that you said there that resonates. But I just, that's that point around. Coherence stuck to me as well, and as you say it, that that being with inside the team and actually, how can we we can convey that better? I mean, I'm sure Dom, you this must be resonating with you as a, as a leadership and a, a coach and life manager specialist as well.
3: Yes, absolutely, very much so. I mean, there's a lot of things going around in my head, Gabrielle, for what you've said already. So I guess if I were listening to this afresh, I'd be thinking there's some fantastic insights here, but many people would have perhaps uh, three causes of alarm, perhaps, maybe, or at least anxiety about this. One is we're talking about stuff, I guess, that people aren't normally happy to talk about, especially at work, about their emotions, about anxiety, about other people's motivations and things that have led them there. I think, secondly, there's a very practical thing around. There's lots of big words, and big words which sound quite quite scary and can put people off. And the third thing that strikes me about this is, and it may be a bit of both, actually, but as a leader, you might be thinking, is this something that helps me fix the team? So, are you offering me a manual and how I can pull a few levers and sort out things that aren't working in my team? Or is it more a roadmap to help me navigate around my team and understand them better? So, those, those are three things. So, I guess, why am I leading with that? Um, one of the things that you do remarkably well is take these theories and help principles and help people apply them practically. So, if you could help us on that journey a bit, please, and say, look, from your experience, what are, what's the one key thing, if you like, that teams need to do to work better and start to address some of these things you've outlined so clearly so far. Sorry, a very big question there, Gabriella. Basically, can you solve the world's problems in one or two sentences?
2: (laughs) No, (laughs) but I'll try and say a bit. And, And it's a good point that what I said so far may really alarm people and scare them. And leaders may also think, oh my God, well, this is something to keep well clear of. I mean, my book is called All That We Are, and that's for a a reason. The reason is that, like it or not, we do bring all that we are to work with us, and we can't avoid that. And Jen, you said it's now we're able to talk about it, and I think we're much better at talking about it now, but you'd be surprised at how many teams and organisations still think they can't. You can't talk about it. So it sits there in the ether So, one of the things I'd say to leaders who are alarmed by this, this stuff is going on. We can pretend it's not, but it comes back and bites us on the bum. So, it's less scary to actually recognise that it's going on and pay some attention to it. And what I don't mean, obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but when people think of psychoanalysis, they might conjure up frightening images of someone lying on a couch with an analyst muttering great interpretations behind them for years on end. That is not what you do in the workplace, obviously. But it is helpful, I think, to think about, okay, I'm working with people here and they are complicated and they are bringing their histories and their personalities to work with them. And partly, yes, I can use that as a leader to navigate my way to understand my team better. But partly there can be some answers in this because if I don't pretend that it's straightforward, I'll be more alert to some of the complexity that can be going on. And I can do things as a leader. For instance, I can build in spaces where people just check in, I check in with my team. It's not an agendaed space. How many meetings are there where people can just check in? I think it's pretty few. Generally, there's just a, right, number one, number two, quick, quick, quick tick off the agenda. And actually, You know, I can hear leaders' voices saying, well, you've got to be joking. I can't start doing a check-in because there's no time. I don't have time even to get through the agenda, let alone doing anything else. My argument is that actually if you attend to people at work, they're more likely to thrive better and cause less difficulty, and that will save you a lot of time. And also they're more likely to stay. And that will save you a lot of time. Or they'll leave because it's the right thing for them and for you if they leave. And that will save you time. So I think there's something about thinking, reprioritizing how leaders spend their time. So there can be the simple things of just saying to people, this isn't a business meeting now. How are we? How is everyone? And then people can say a little bit or a lot it's up to them. They don't have to say, you know, they don't have to say, well, when I was three, my mum did this. It's not about that. But it might be saying, actually, I'm really preoccupied because the sale of our house just fell through or whatever it is. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be present at this meeting, but I know I'm not. I'm waiting for an important phone call. I'm worried that my child is not doing well at school. Whatever those things are that we all bring with us to work, despite the words of don't bring your problems to work, of course we do. So I think some of it can be quite simple. But then at another level, I think it's also about thinking more, being more curious as a leader, as a manager and as a team member about why why are you reacting like you are? and why are your colleagues or your staff reacting like they are? So rather than just thinking somebody's completely out of order in the response they gave you, you know, maybe they are, and maybe that needs to be tackled. But it's also helpful to think about what might be going on that triggered that response. And that person doesn't normally behave like that. So what is happening, or? Why am I now so furious with that person when somebody last week did a similar thing and I wasn't that furious? What's going on with me? So there's something also about the curiosity that I think is actually often really missing and is really helpful.
3: It's interesting you mentioned those things, I think, because it's a a theme we've come across a number of times about leadership, which is the importance of having these conversations. And we know that often leaders are concerned about doing it because, and they've said to me in the past somehow, that we don't want to start asking questions because to be frank, we don't really want people to open up because we're not sure we can deal with what it is they're going to say. And that seems to be rooted in a a belief that leaders always have to have the answers. And I think what you're saying, one of the things you're saying is they don't have to have the answers. It's more a case of being curious and and, and bringing things to the surface. And, And I think if there are any benefits that we can take from COVID, maybe that's one of the things that did come out of was good about response to COVID was that more and more leaders saw the benefits of checking in, of asking questions, because they were compelled to by the circumstances around COVID, I think. So I think it's very interesting this this whole area about conversations.
2: I totally agree. I think it was a good thing about COVID and and some leaders became better communicators because they did take the time to actually check in with their staff and listen to their staff. And also, there was no way they could have the answers. Nobody knew anything. So, the leaders could allow themselves more vulnerability because they were also in this completely unknown situation. We weren't all in it together, obviously, but leaders were... We were equally facing an existential threat... We were, I mean, not equally, because if you were a bus driver with no protection, you faced it, or an NHS frontline worker, you faced it massively more than people like me sitting, working from home. But the fear, the internal fear was there, and the newness of the situation and the enormity of the uncertainty was there. So I think people did feel they could show more of their own vulnerability And they could talk to their staff and they didn't have to have the answers because they couldn't. But it actually was really helpful just letting staff talk to them and genuinely listening.
1: I would like to pick up on various things that you've said, Gabriella, because, you know, I'm fascinated by this entire topic. And for me, I think, you know, against the backdrop of early 2023 and the Emergence of the latest tech hype, which you know is, is chat GPT and where that might take us. I feel as if we're at a you know we're at a fork in the road now. And as you said earlier, you know, you on your career journey you had become frustrated by the fact that there wasn't any material that allowed you to understand the dynamics of how people interoperate in the workplace, yet there was plenty of instructive material to tell you how best to pull together a balance sheet or create a project plan or what have you. You know, these hard angular aspects of business are A, easy to document, you know, follow the process and then this will happen. And B, these are the aspects of business that technology will augment and amplify and facilitate. And you know, if you, if you see yourself as a leader and you remain singularly focused on these very hard, dare I say, sterile aspects of business, that's well and good. But, you know, the futurists have been saying for a while, it's the human elements of business that presents the opportunity for us now. And actually, for me, that means... Enhancing your emotional intelligence. I think the upside of that is that we're born with emotional intelligence. We're born with a profound capacity for social connection. And, you know, I think the system and the environment probably has a lot to answer for in terms of sort of reducing our capacity for social connection and emotional intelligence. I'm really interested in, in addition to everything that you describe, You know, the work that Brené Brown has done in the United States where she's gone out and she's tried to articulate the full range of emotions that humans can feel. And in addition to labelling those emotions, then taking the time to describe the feeling of those emotions and then also how they manifest as behaviours. That for me is now the opportunity, you know, if we're going to face this onslaught of artificial intelligence, the opportunity for those of us who aspire to be human centric, you know, having the language to clearly articulate ourselves. And we are in that, I think we're all agreed, we're still in that fledgling space of learning the language that you talked about coherence earlier and and I maybe misunderstood the term, but we've talked about before about alignment, about sharing our understanding of certain words so that when somebody says, I don't know, agile, we all understand what that means in this context, in this team dynamic, etc. So I think there's loads of opportunity for professionals who are impassioned by relationship and communication to step up and help us navigate ourselves as we adapt to increasingly fluid and shape-shifting and uncertain working environments. And all that said, what, in your opinion, could internal communicators do to enhance team performance, group performance, organisational performance?
2: In my view, internal communicators have a huge role to play. And part of that, I think, is recognising that the mammoth uncertainty of this time that we're at, we're fledgling in some unknown developing new epoch of work. You know, we don't know how it's going to come out yet. We talk about hybrid, we don't really know how to do it. We've got a huge amount to learn about how to do it. So it's it's a very, it's full of opportunity and full of threat, the time that we're in. AI has both of those sides to it, for sure. So I think internal communicators have a huge role to play in helping to contain to some degree the huge stress of all of this, of this enormous process of transformation that we don't know what's happening and where it's going. And I think they, in doing that, what they can do is be really nuanced and not try and be simplistic and just give good news stories. So really think about how do they communicate? How do they get their leaders to spend time not just giving boring messages but actually having proper conversations? I think internal communicators have got so much to offer in terms of rethinking communication that helps humanise the workplace. That's a massive job, isn't it? Yeah, and
0: I was just going to jump in, Gabriella, because there's so much that you've said when you talk about this, and I'm going to use a phrase I think I chatted about a number of podcasts ago, is I do feel we're in the business on return on emotion. And I'm going to say that again, because I think that's the thing that organisations could tap into, is to really emotionally connect intelligence and all that to give that return. And I think there's a lot in there as well that you talk about around how we can help then on a practical sense, open up the dialogue, but also as well, we've talked a lot about leaders, but do you include like line managers within that and how we are enabling them? Because I think that they're in a really tough spot right now. And I say that as a line manager is that I try to be, sometimes I can take it really personal when someone I feel is just a bit just feels off and I think what have I said and what have I done and then I have to go away and think about it and then check in and that takes a lot of work and that's a really hard place isn't it for for many line managers to be.
2: Thank you for bringing in line managers it's so important and and sometimes I say leaders as a you know as if that includes managers and it doesn't So line managers are often the ones right there in the centre of things, not necessarily given the support, told what to do without the... They don't necessarily have the power to change some things, but they're given a lot of responsibility for how things work out. So I totally think line managers are part of this. They've got to be able to have proper conversations as well. And communication... Yes, absolutely. It's got to include emotion. Communication is not just about, we're going to shut early tomorrow. You know, AI presumably could do that and much more. But, you know, proper communication has got to reach different parts of us. This sounds tangential, but I think it might not be. One of the things I realised in writing the book... I tell stories in the book, and I started to learn some of the techniques of fiction in order to tell the stories. And what I eventually realized is that I really wanted my book to communicate emotionally given it's about feelings and emotions and all that we are. I didn't want people just to read it from their head and their intellect, but I wanted their hearts, their guts, their senses to be involved. And so I would deliberately include senses. So I might bring in a smell or a sound or a whatever it is, you know, deliberately trying, which a novelist does, to engage the reader on different levels and I think internal communicators of course they're not writers they're not novelists they're not any of those things but they do have to think about not just as you said and that's really important who are the audience and why we can't just segment them in the same old ways anymore but also how are we trying to reach them on what levels are we trying to reach
3: them Look, Gabriella. as communicators listen to this, there's a lot of fantastic stuff we've we've talked about. And I think at least three things strike me. Firstly, my words, but I think you, one of the things you're saying is it, it's okay to find the people side of leadership and communication tough because everyone you're dealing with is, is, is a unique set of circumstances and influences that, that have shaped them and how they respond. And the best that we can do to help them is to, is to try and understand that. I think that takes us through to the second one, which is your point about check-in that uh, really to be an effective communicator as a leader, it's not about being able to pronounce things brilliantly or articulate them brilliantly, although it's good if you can do that, but it's it's about being curious and asking questions and taking the time to do that. And I think it's particularly important you've, you've raised the issue of line managers as well, because, again, that's something perhaps that came out of responses to COVID, that line managers became even more important because they were the connection that most people had with their organisations. And the last one I think I've taken from is... It's about the job of internal communication is, and we probably know this, but it's good to be reminded and reinforced, it's about connecting emotionally with people, or at least part of it is. So, yes, it's about being open. It's about giving all sides of the story. And I love your your analogy with fiction writers and how you've used that and storytellers who are able to tap into emotions. So another very difficult question, I'm afraid, but for people listening to this, for internal communicators and others who are listening to it, What is the one thing that you would like them to take away from what we've discussed in this session?
2: The one thing I'd like them to take away is to think of themselves more than they do. So, and yes, absolutely, it's really tough working with people and they shouldn't feel bad about saying that or feeling that. But think about themselves and pay attention to their own emotional state and how it's Changing. So, kind of take their own emotional temperature and use this is the emotional intelligence bit, but use their feelings as information and make time and space for that. Don't dismiss them. A second, in brackets, related thing to recognize that in other people, that they will have emotions that's unavoidable important, helpful, help them as an internal communicator to be all right with that and help yourself as an internal communicator to be all right with that.
1: I think that is a lovely, lovely ending, not least because although we have spoken so much about emotional intelligence on this podcast series, actually, Gabriella, what you've done for the very first time, I think, is invite internal communicators to hold a mirror up to themselves rather than shining a spotlight on the emotional intelligence of others. And actually, I see what you've just said as, one, an act of self-care, which is really needed right now because it's big work that we all have in front of us. But also, that is the dance, isn't it? If you can understand your own emotional responses, you can better empathise for the emotional responses that you perceive in others. And I feel so grateful, actually, that you've just turned that lens around a little bit. And I hope that all internal communicators listening today will just take pause and think about that, because this is really important work that we're doing now. It's really important work. the world as we know it ceases to function without world-class communication. So I'm so, so grateful to you for joining us today. Thank you so, so much. We will, of course, let our listeners know where they can find out more about you and the book in the show notes that we put together to accompany this episode. And thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation with the three of you. Thank you very much for the conversation and for inviting me.
1: Thank you so much,
0: Gabriella. We
2: hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode.
0: If you have, please like it and share it with your friends and colleagues on your preferred digital channels. Every recommendation helps us spread the word to build a better, more connected and inclusive future of work. Thanks for listening.